Begin transmission. Transmission. The Frontline Gaming Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. The Frontline Gaming Network presenting Art of War with Nick Natavati and John Damaris. Hello, I'm Val Heffelfinger. John Damaris has vanished into the jungles of the Philippines, but don't fret. He's recently emerged, caked in nothing but mud and crude camouflage, and returned to the United States. Soon, JD will be back. For the meantime, though, instead you have me, someone eminently qualified to have no idea how anything works at high levels of 40K. I'm here to ask the questions, the dumb questions. And to answer them, we have, as always, one of the most notorious players in 40K. A man who needs an introduction only so that he remembers who he is. Four-time winner of Adepticon, I'm pretty sure. I yes. <laughs> and LVO champ, and probably the only person to win the European Championship on two different national teams. The man, the magic, the Nick Nanavak. Wave your hat to the crowd, man. Thank you for that lovely introduction. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, but there's another guy on this call. Really, the reason why we're here together. Cameron Pinheiro, a.k.a. Sexy Mexi, a.k.a. Cameroni Pepperoni, Harlequins aficionado, and self-handicapping badass. He's won Best Harlequins in multiple editions, spanning both 7th and 8th edition, and managed a 5-in-1 showing at the 2020 LVO, perhaps the last one ever, running an Eldari list that was interesting. Hello, Cameron. Hello, hola. How are you all doing today? Great, Mexico. How are you doing? Fantastic. Surviving quarantine up here in the frozen north of Wisconsin. Uh, that's great. Uh, for those of you who aren't aware, Cameron is one of my really good friends from back when I, we both used to live in Jersey. Uh, we would often be sparring buddies and 40K practice people. And uh, he's one of the few people who's beaten me, I don't know, more times than I can count. So he's made a name for himself in the small community that is the Harlequin world. And we are here to shed some light on it. That's pretty awesome. I'm, I know I'm looking forward to learn something about these, these clowns. But uh, before that, I want to do a little housekeeping, so that way the, uh, the powers that be are, are satisfied with the job I'm doing here. And that's, first of all, to thank Frontline Gaming for hosting this podcast on their delightful Frontline Gaming Network, uh, which also includes other shows such as Signals from the Frontline, starring Reese and a resurgent Frankie, which is great. And Chapter Tactics, um, which is a show that I occasionally appear on. And whenever there's tournaments to talk about again, you'll maybe hear from uh, Peter the Falcon and myself on 40K Stat Center. Of course, if you like what you hear in this particular episode, you can always sign up for the Art of War Patreon. I myself am a member at five bucks a month with over 40 episodes in the can. Gets you access to some pretty awesome content. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of these silly, laffy, daffy clowns, we got to do a little bit of housekeeping, and then I'll get out of the way. First of all, thanks to Frontline Gaming for hosting this show on their fabulous Frontline Gaming Network, where you can listen to other awesome shows, such as Signals from the Frontline, starring Reese and a resurgent Frankie. He's back. And then, of course, Chapter Tactics, hosted by Pablo Martinez, one of the finest hosts in all of 40K, and he brings on a merry band of other guests that sometimes include myself, but also guys like Scary, Brandon Grant, and other dudes whose names you would know. And then uh, also, um, there's a little show called 40K Stat Center, which uh, 
Peter the Falcon and myself, uh, Peter the Falcon, of course, at 40kstats.com, host when there's tournaments to cover uh, that aren't a threat to civilization. Uh, you can definitely check us out when we return to air at some point in the future. And uh, of course, if you like what you hear on this particular episode, you can sign up for the Art of War Patreon. I myself am a member for five bucks a month. You get, I guess, what, what, what we're up to now, what, 40 episodes in the can? It's a crazy amount of content, really, really high quality players coming in, talking shop with both Nick and uh, the other guy. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, tremendous value. And of course, these guys are doing some great stuff over at the art of war 40k.com. Nick, what are you guys up to these days? We do a lot of stuff, uh, on that website. So we do 40k coaching. We have a myriad of coaches ranging from myself, Richard Siegler, who's currently number one in the ITC, uh, former number one, in the ITC, Matt Root, second place at LVO, Brad Chester, best chaos player, TJ Lanigan, and so many more. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, uh, check it out there. We also have just started increasing our War Room stuff. So that's our private server for members only. We do weekly strategy sessions now where we go through top-level tournament tactics and break them down for you visually on a live stream. And then we teach six classes per week on Chaos, Imperial, Space Marines, Eldari, Xenos, and just general 40k. And we do weekly meta breakdowns even when there are no events to break down. That's how much we care. So Amazing. you can check all that out, theartofwar40k.com. And of course, I don't know, did you mention the Twitch streaming that you do? Oh, yeah. So recently, uh, thanks to the support of Obey Alliance, the esports team, oh, myself, uh, Richard Siegler, and Mark Perry have just gotten onto some Twitch streaming. And it's really, really cool. And you should check it out. Uh, <laughs> That was cool. Um, <laughs> um, so that is on twitch.tv slash IOW40K. We do two, three streams a week on there, and we have a daily painting stream where you can watch me make a fool of myself with a paintbrush at every day, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Honestly, um, you're a hobby streamer now, Nick? I know. It, it, it's, it's truly that, the end of the world. You know? do, do, like, do, uh, do like actual painters come on to like the thread and just like just bombard you with, with sometimes with i've had professional painters be come in there and like give me tips or just like be like a job and all kinds of cool that's stuff great. yeah that's actually not it's, a bad that's not a bad idea reverse engineer the painting stream instead of it being a coaching stream for other people it could be so that other twitch painters can come and coach you right right it's all about that improvement Brilliant. but honestly it's not so much like i'm not a painting stream in the sense that other people are painting streams right you're not watching me paint to learn something but you're hanging out with me richard siegler and mark perry we're all in there just talking for k cool. hanging out it's you know what else are you doing now the world is ending exactly i mean that's pretty cool um yeah so i wanted to really highlight that because i didn't realize that was free content i thought that you had to pay for that stuff uh, no 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 please used to be part of your uh, your package Absolutely. So just uh, come hang out. It's free. Yeah. Twitch.tv slash AOW40K. And one more time, what's the schedule? When, when can people watch? So we are doing uh, games now on Twitch every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern time and every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. That way we can kind of get those European players to uh, still be able to watch. We want to try to expand time zones and increase production uh, one step at a time, though. Um, we're still new to this. We've only been doing it for about three weeks now. Um, mm -hmm. but it's been going really well. The community is supporting us super awesomely. So the more you guys support us, the more we will gladly do for you. All right. Well, um, I, for one, will be popping into one of those streams in between my various Games Workshop licensed video game uh, sessions, which I've been into these days. Haven't been playing a lot of 40K, guys, but I get the impression that you both have. I'm going to hijack the show a little bit here. I'm going to throw a question out there. How the hell is there a meta 
what have you guys been doing to actually keep playing and evolving your game when you can't really go down to the store and do it? So this is uh, a great question. And one I talk about all the time to my coaching clients. And I don't want to derail this podcast too long before we get to Cameron and his awesome Harlequins, but I'll answer this one. As, so, as a listener of the show, usually this is something that I genuinely wonder because yeah. I I just don't care right now. So like... It's totally understandable. A lot of people are like, going through the same thing. So I think there's a big misconception with how the meta works. The meta is not defined by what wins events. That is just what... The events just make it visible. The meta is being formed with or without events. I, I can promise you that. So... The meta is typically defined by usually what the stronger players bring tournaments and what does well. That's how you can see what the meta is by what by watching what does well. The stronger players are trying to figure out what's going to do well based on new releases or just innovation. This is a great time to be innovative. Um, people often don't have the ability to try and learn new factions or explore cool ideas that they came up with in the shower three weeks ago because they're so busy going from event to event to event. For example... I went to SoCal with Iron Hands. Then I had to go to Warzone Atlanta the next week with Iron Hands because what else was I going to run? The day after Warzone, basically, I had to submit my list for Pro Tabletop, which, you know, I've only been playing Iron Hands, so I guess I'll keep playing Iron Hands. And then it just kind of snowballs through that all the way to LVO, where I probably should have ran Iron Hands. And then Adepticon's like, well, I still don't have much experience with other armies uh, in the past few months, so let me stick with my Iron Hands. Granted, Adepticon didn't happen, but, you know, that's not neither here nor there. So now that we have a hiatus from events, it's a great time to get explorative and try to find really cool stuff. Richard Siegler is moving to Farside Enclaves instead of Triple Riptide. There's actually no Riptides in this town army nowadays. Uh, I've just beat Mark Perry with Salamanders, of all factions, on our Twitch channel earlier today. Mark has been dominating us. Like I've lost like five times to his Emperor's Children Noise Marines. Those are words you probably never, never heard. But yeah. um so, I mean, that, that's pretty cool. I mean, you do live in literally a 40K frat house. So I'm just going to throw the same idea question. Like, I mean, you, you have a unique scenario where yeah, you guys... absolutely. But there's a way you, can guys, you guys can follow that. You guys can, one, become part of the Art of War family and all that, yeah. that it pertains. And you can literally watch us with all this stuff. Um, you can also join us on Tabletop Simulator. A lot of our coaches are starting to play on there. there a lot go. of other people who are not affiliated with Art of War just play on their leagues now. Uh, the Art of War is running a league. There's tournaments, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, that's where you can play and sharpen your skills. It's not quite the same as playing 40K in real life. The social aspect certainly isn't there, but it's a good band-aid for the time being. The times we're in. Cameron, what yeah. have you been doing stuff like that to, to keep playing and engage? Oh, 100%. A lot of tabletop simulator. Um, trying out a lot of weird, wacky things, obviously involving Harlequins. Um, something we can probably talk about a little bit here, but uh, I'm also part of that Outer World League coming up. And I'm quite excited to be running something a little bit more off the wall. So we'll see how that goes. Very cool. And Nick, uh, do you want to maybe introduce the the list that we'll be talking? Is that, is that the best list to talk about? The, the LVO list? I, I think so. I think it's got a lot of stuff that's really unique and Cameron did really well with it. Um, I don't want to give away any of his secret tech for this art of war league prematurely. So <laughs> let's talk about that. Uh, Cameron, why don't you walk us through what your LVO list was? Absolutely. So to start it all off, um, it is two Eldar detachments and a Harlequin detachment. Um, one of the things I want to mention at the beginning here is that as much as I love my Harlequins, they do not function at a high level competitively as a solo faction, in my opinion. So because of that, I always have to ally them, use it with Eldar or Dark Eldar, and kind of complement them because when you only have eight units in a book, you can only do so much. 
So to kind of start things off here, I started off with a uh, Eldar Battalion. Uh, this is the Superior Shriekens, so the extra range on them. And then sort of the prophecy, so all my psychic tests, whenever I roll a one, it actually counts as a two. I got a Farseer on a bike. I got two Warlocks on bikes. A uh, big unit of 20 Guardians with two Shuriken Cannon platforms. Two units of five Rangers for my rounding up my troops. A fast attack of nine Shining Spears. I ended up going with the Skilled Rider to give the XRS save against shooting. Then I have a Spearhead Eldar Detachment. This is our lovely expert crafters and masterful shots. Uh, three Wraith Lords are the heavy support. All of them have missile launchers for that extra range. Uh, they all have their swords. Um, I had some extra points left over, so one of them has two flamers, because why not? Um, that HQ that led it all was the Avatar of Cain. And then hey rounded there. it all off. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then rounded it all off was the Harlequin's Patrol. Um, this is the Silent Shroud, so the negative leadership uh, mask. We had a Shadow Steel with my Warlord. A unit of five Harlequins with literally nothing on them, just some pistols and some blades. Uh, my main man, the Solitaire, with his favorite Segrox Rose relic. A massive unit of six Skyweavers, all of them with their glaives and haywire cannons. Awesome. So there's a lot of unorthodox unit choices here that I want to get into. Um, let's start with why is there an avatar? <laughs> <laughs> why is there an avatar? So the avatar is one of the more interesting picks. Uh, he was a mixture of what I was looking for in terms of uh, craft world agnostic synergy in the list. So the avatar, as if you, for y'all who haven't seen him or haven't really played with him before, um, I actually have the forgeable avatar. So he's on a 60 millimeter base. He's a large centerpiece. He is an eight wound character. Uh, three up armor, five up invul, just kind of a solid brick that can really anchor a line. Uh, he's got five attacks. He's strength nine, uh, assume strength eight, uh, negative four, and 2d6 damage, uh, rolling two with the highest, basically melta in combat. And he's really a very solid uh, anchor point as a good ch counter-charging unit. Uh, the cool thing about him is that any Eldar, or excuse me, any Aseriani, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, that are within six inches of him um, become fearless. So the big thing I liked about him was all of my guardians, if I'm spreading across massive uh, two objectives or trying to screen off zones, you have to kill them to a man because I don't have to spend any command points to keep them around on the table. Uh, he really just kind of anchors the lines, and then nothing really wants to have something charge them that has five attacks in and on twos, wounding them probably on threes with a couple re-rolls from expert crafters, and just nuking things if they get too close. So he's kind of like your your centerpiece, like countercharge anchor, like you said, like like your insurance policy, your goalie, perhaps. Exactly. Gotcha. And that fearless sword, I'm sure, uh, does wonders for those guardians you have. Because uh, as someone who's used guardian blobs before, they are allergic to morale tests and, you know, you don't have many CP. Yeah, going from Leadership 7 to just not having to worry about it at all was hands down the reason why I took him. Um, in all of my games, it mattered. Uh, it basically saved me two command points, two to four command points a, a game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so now I'm trying to break down how your army plays on the table. You got a Guardian Blob, you got Spears, you got Enos Skywars, you got three Wraith Lords and an Avatar. These are all in a vacuum, maybe minus the Avatar. Good units, right? Like Guardians are good, Spears are good, Skyweavers are good, Wraith Lords are good. Most players will agree on that. 
So how are you piecing them all together? Like usually people will take multiple spear squads or you'll see like 18 Skyweavers. You'll see Wraith Lords coupled with Night Spinners and Crimson Hunters and things like that for make a pure shooty list. You've kind of gone down a middle of the road approach. So what's the thought process there? Sure. So to kind of uh, start this off, I think we got to need to take a step back and talk more about how I as a player like to play. Um, I think you talk about this a lot, Nick, on some of your other podcasts where um, you have like more aggressive lists or you have more defensive lists or you have some kind of like those mixed paths, if you will, right? Um, this, this, uh, when you typically see spears or skyweavers or any of these fast-moving, hard-hitting uh, units, you expect it to be very, very aggressive. Um, I actually took an opposite approach and kind of don't tone it back a little bit and have it a very more defensive and solid core to kind of build around as both a castle, but then also have that amazing mobility uh, to really put pressure on weakened flanks or just reach out and touch things that I really need to. So I guess to kind of start it off, when you see spears and guardians in a list, and um, you also notice I had two warlocks and a farseer. Um, as we all know, protect, quicken, fortune are like your main elder powers that you would ever expect to have. Um, and really, with these three powers, you can make one of those two units incredibly resilient. Um, the way that I used to usually like to play with is basically buff up whatever one suits the match more than anything. So in some cases, I might have the Guardians hanging out turn one, basically being a screen with that fearless bubble, pressing out as far as they can, deep striking the spears, or putting them in a far enough position on the board so that they can't be touched by my opponent. Um, and then the Guardians just kind of hang out in the middle, having a two-up uh, two armor from the platforms, a four-up four or three-up involve against shooting. And fortune is you're not going to move that block. Um, other cases, I might have the spears get buffed up and run around causing serious disruption against my opponent. Um, it really, it the way I built it is to kind of tailor it to the individual match that I like and really focus on the individual strengths. Um, and the cool thing about the army, I think, too, is that it is incredibly defensive when you actually combine all the buffs um, on top of all the LVO terrain of hiding behind line sight, um, mobility, and then just Wraith Lords being toughness eight, Guardians and Spears being fearless. Um, I'm having a three up involve in the XARP or two up involve, three up involve. Um, if you protect them against shooting, Sky Rivers can just run out and be three up involve as well, too. I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm going to throw out a dumb question. Um, because I've never actually encountered a Wraith Lord in um, any edition since third, uh, I'm curious. Is it does it have the care like is it uh, below nine wounds or what have you like is it able to hide is it like uh, a chaplain dreadnought in that respect or is it something that can be targeted? Well, you're, you're like you're triggering me here because I want them to be so good, but they're not. Um, no, they are toughness toughness eight, strength eight, um, two strength seven, uh, nine in combat, but they are uh, ten wound monster uh, with mm. armor. Saved. The one thing that they have going for them is that they are. Uh, they used to be one of the largest models in 40k back in like third and fourth edition when That's those what I'm came out. Yeah, and they also <laughs> always fall apart because they're made of pewter. So it's always oh just my god, stuck to the base at the end of the game. Anyway. The entire head was just like a solid pound of just pewter by itself. No, no, no. Thankfully, they're all plastic here. But um, yes. uh, with LVO and moving towards their standardized terrain, um, they actually fit just underneath their ruins. So they are. Uh, toughness eight and a fairly small frame and um, a small profile, if you will, that they can hide behind ruins easily enough and still be 
very, very durable. Okay. So they, they, while they don't have the character protection, they are able, they're, they're big, but able to hide still. Yep. I think, I mean, one of these guns are also a lot cheaper than like a Chaplin Dread for a similar type of role. Like, yes, you can shoot it. They both fire a Chaplin's two last cannons. This Wraith Lord is two missile launchers. They're both comparable in close combat, a bunch of high strength, high AP, three damage, flat attacks. But the Chaplin Dread is 167, and the Wraith Lord is like, what, 120, Cameron? Uh, 130, yeah. Yeah, so 40 points cheaper, pretty much, um, which is a really, you know, that's substantial across three Wraith Lords or three Chaplain Dreads. It's 120 points back in savings. And it's yeah. not wonderful to shoot a Wraith Lord. Like, it is 120 points, and it doesn't do much. It's got two missile launcher shots. Like, you're not killing a singular Wraith Lord is like, what have I actually accomplished with my turn? And it was worth it's way more effort than it was worth. And I guess part 100%. of that. Part of that spearhead cohort includes the derided avatar. Can you mention that it's there for synergies, um, independent of you know what craft world he's from? But what else is there about him? I remember he's got like some sort of melta rule. Um, I can't remember how many wounds he has. What, what's going on with the avatar? Yeah, yeah. So he's an eight wound character, which is the perfect perfect number for anything. There we go. Uh, he's toughness six. Um, so surprisingly tough for. You know, him being an avatar. Uh, three up armor, five up invul. He comes naturally with a five up feel no pain. Um, oh, the other thing I forgot to mention earlier, besides him giving fearless to everything within six inches, uh, he also provides a reroll fail charge aura, craft world independent. So, stringing things out for guardians or for spears, especially if they're deep striking and I push them up the board, having a free reroll for charges is really, really nice when you want to have um, very, very aggressive things. Definitely. So more on the conceptual strategy of your list. Are you aggressively pushing up with all this stuff or are you like hiding and chipping away with Wraith Lord shooting? I, I just trying to understand like how this army plays. Yeah. So I, and we can get into this a little bit more uh, probably in the next episode when we talk more like individual matchups. Yeah, um, definitely. You'll change your approach based on what you're playing against, of course, but just kind of generally. Yeah. So this um, tends to be more of a late game focused army. Um, I kind of want to hide turns one and two, usually deep striking the spears, um, deep striking the sky reavers if I have to, if I don't have good enough terrain to hide one of the or one or both of the units. Uh, usually the Wraith Lords, <clears throat> excuse me, usually the Wraith Lords just be that anchor point of hanging out on objectives. Um, the cool thing with them with their missile launchers being 48 inches, that's not that's probably a little bit longer than most armies currently are. So they can really be sitting in the backfield, taking a couple shots, hitting some key value targets, um, having the Guardians just really be defensive and buffed up early on, um, having the Harlequins just kind of waiting around, and really the name of the game is being patient until I can have that explosive turn three or four, where suddenly you have you know, nine spears and six Skyweavers all on your lines doing crazy things after I've picked off a few things from shooting here and there, um, and really just holding them out the rest of my board. Right, and that's one thing that's interesting about your army. It is explosively fast. Like you said, the Guardians can deep strike or deploy, um, and the Fire and Fade, of course. The Spears have access to Quicken and can just move twice, and the Skyweavers obviously have access to their Shadow Seer, which allows them to move twice as well. So you are lightning fast when you need to be. What do you do with all that speed? Like, How do you leverage that? So the fun thing, I think we're going to jump back here to the Harlequins, is that... uh, Spears and Guardians, despite them being either they're buffed up or if they're quote unquote durable, 
when they charge things they really do not like overwatch in fact a lot of the game does not like overwatch despite having three of involves or some other protection if you will um so my skyweavers uh the big unit of six they can go 44 inches and still charge that's what their twilight pathways um then them being silent shroud uh, i have a two command point stratagem silken knife basically allows a unit to ignore overwatch so and the fun thing i like with doing that's the purpose of that pretty much yes so while you introduce them as the minus one leadership one really they're the charge without overwatch one yes uh, and six jet bikes um they're all on their big flying bases so those are what the uh 60 mil bases they can take up a lot of real estate on the board um them being able to both fall back act normally meaning both shooting and charging because they're harlequins they can really just fly 44 inches up the board ignore overwatch literally charge everything within 12 inches touch as many possible units as they physically fit jump over models and then fall back out and do it all again the next turn so while you're trying to deal with um skyweavers that after they advance they can have a three up and one will save that ignore an overwatch they're just a huge massive pain in the rear for my opponent um and on top of that they're pretty good in combat being negative two and two damage each and then anything they shoot at with the vehicle keyword just is just melt belted from the haywire shots too interesting so they're not that tough to kill right they're, they're three ones each which definitely isn't bad and they're minus one to hit with shooting um, but if you're just charging them into the enemy army to tag a bunch of stuff, aren't they going to die? What can you do to keep them alive? Yeah, so uh, three wounds each, toughness four, not not the most survival thing. Uh, the thing that they do have is that they have a four up and one will save always. Um, and then they also have the one command point stratagem to, after they advance, they can increase that to a three up and one will save for the rest of the turn until my next turn. So them flying up, having a three-up and one will save suddenly makes them much, much more resilient. Um, yeah, and then true. Harlequins, of course, uh, being an Eldar, they have access to lightning fast, so they can be minus two to shooting or minus one against them. Right, and I guess that that goes a long way. I was thinking like a, something like a Smash Captain, which are everywhere, could just be an awesome counter charging to punch through the Skyweavers, you know? Bunch of attacks, flat three damage, straight day, it's perfect. But when you think about it, with lightning fast, the minus two to hit could make smash captain with his thunder hammer hit you on fours that's kind of crappy and then of course you have a three up invul save it's like all right you might kill one skyweaver like that's not impressive at all exactly and then they'll probably swing back and kill you because they're two damage each right that's deceptively hard to kill interesting so how do you i'm trying to think of your army i guess on the table, right? There's three Wraithlords and an Avatar. They're hanging out. Your Spears and your Skyweavers are waiting for opportunities to, to go in uh, to either let you advance up the table further or to just uh, do a devastating blow to your opponent. How do you hide it all or deploy or do you put stuff in reserves much? What's the approach there? Yeah, so it really depends on what I want to do with the Guardians. And the Guardians kind of are the crux of the way that I think about deployment. Um, if my opponent is more horde-based, or if they're something that's um, going to come at me and I really need to have screens, um, I'll put the Guardians out first. And if I do that, it, I will go ahead and then reserve the Spears or Deep Strike them, just so that way I have that screening potential. I can clear out a few targets early game. Um, when you think about all the Guardian shots, they're 16-inch range, two shots each. I got Doom. I can just pick up things fairly easy. Does um, that reroll charge work on those guys coming in? Absolutely, it does. Heck yeah. Um, 
And then when you think about it too, the Skyweavers either want to be somewhere near with the spears to kind of support them, um, or they just want to be disruptive. So they'll either deep strike with them, or they will typically hide in the back behind some line of sight blocking terrain, um, ready to strike. Awesome. Okay. So basically, the, the you kind of base your game plan on if you're going to deep strike the Guardians or deploy the Guardians. What... Uh, I mean, what kind of factors into that decision? Do you ever deep strike your spears also, your Skyweavers? Like, you can deep strike almost your whole army, minus three Wraith Lords and the Avatar. What kind of factors into that? It really depends on the type of shooting and terrain and deployment that I have against my opponent. Um, because if I am going second, especially, um, and some prefer, I personally, I prefer to go second just to have that uh, final say on objectives if we're talking about the But, um, if my opponent has a lot of indirect shots or a lot of quality shooting that can pick up spears early on, I will go ahead and spend the four command points, three for the guardians and the spears and one for the uh, skyweavers, and just have them sitting around waiting as most of my army literally is coming down and having that massive hammer blow. While having three wraith lords in the avatar means you don't want to come near me. All I have left is basically a bunch of characters and three wraith lords that are incredibly hard to remove, especially if they're hiding or in cover. Yeah, so in a way, your army is almost a denialist, right? So you have all these big brick units of, of Guardian Spears Skyweavers that don't really have to expose themselves to be contributing or at least threatening a position. Your Wraith Lords are can hide very well and then just pop out with Master Crafters for the rerolls to hit and wound. Um, they're still very accurate, even hitting on fours at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you're actually just going for like a, okay, you didn't really kill much in your turn. My six mislaunchers killed like a small tank, or maybe my sky viewers went out and killed a, a one a small skirmish versus scout squad. So I kill the unit, I killed more, go up two points, maybe get a nice recon point, that kind of th that kind of thing. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Um, if we're talking IGC, when you think about it, like looking at my list, Nick, what kind of secondaries would you pick against me here? That's a good question. So looking at it, I mean. Big Game Hunter comes to mind. We got three Wraith Lords, and the Avatar also contributes. Um, then we could also go for Ted Hunter, I guess. It's really hard for Seldar because you basically have to table them to, to get that secondary out of them. Yep. Um, because those Far Series and Warlocks aren't are going to be the last things you get to. Now, something like the Solitaire might commit suicide at some point. Um, but he's also 100 points. So. If he's not running straight at you, it's not like a, the biggest deal for the Eldar player. Like you're using him as a threat and not losing him. Uh, I could go Gangbusters for three points on the Skyweavers. Doesn't sound too great. It's uh, the actual Eldar one. I mean, if this was if we're if we're wearing the LVO period hat, there's so, a, the the one that oh, was like, the, the what, pick your poison back when yeah. that existed. Yes. Yeah, I don't even know what that does. <laughs> <laughs> I picked it one time in the semifinals of Pro Tabletop against Sean Naden, and I scored like one point on it, and I'm like, this is the stupidest secondary ever. I was told this is for Eldar. I've been ripped off. <laughs> I was also told it was for Eldar. I was like, oh, this makes sense. And I took it, and I'm like, oh, this is dumb. <laughs> um, oh, anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's 
definitely an interesting denial type of list. So that's that's not something you typically see Eldar players going for. The denial style suits like Custodes and uh, Death Guard, those types of armies, a lot more naturally. So why have you gone for this approach to your Eldar instead of like a, a mass shooting volume type of list or like 27 Shining Spears? A lot of other players often just go for straight brute force. Why have you opted for something more janky, as we'll put it? Sure. So... I like to be in control of the game. That's kind of more of my play style than anything. I don't want to brute force things down with just number of shots or math, essentially, if you will. Um, because I feel like games and the way that I prefer to play 40k is really winning and losing the game in the movement phase and more of a high level rather than just saying, I'm going to shoot three Crimson Hunters and three Hemlocks and a million Night Spinners at you. That doesn't sound appealing to me. I like being able to have the options to go out, have control over the board, make the plays that I want to play, um, and then really like just deny my opponent kills and points and things. Um, I think the way you phrased it just a second ago was perfect. You want to have control over, and this is something I teach all the time in Art of War and the War Room and in our clinics and stuff and for my coaching clients. But to highlight that point and go a little further. If you're running that type of math hammer list, right, those three Crimson Hunter X-Harks, the three Hemlocks, the Night Spinners, as you said it, and you run into something that can handle you, or maybe like a, a type of match where if it's, they've also brought a bunch of guns, it's really going to be who shoots first, you are no longer in control. You're entirely at the mercy of your matchup and your dice. You roll a bad shooting phase and your opponent rolls a good shooting phase, guess you're dead. You got lot one second in a gun line mirror, guess you're dead. Like. That's not where tournament players find high levels of consistency. And that's why you're seeing people like Richard Siegler forego nine broadside tail and focus on movement tail. That's why you're seeing players, not to name names here, but like Manny Shima's 15 artillery piece Imperial Fist list run into some consistency issues at LVO, and he didn't make top bracket. Now, Manny's a great player, but he's not allowing himself to leverage that ability with that list. He's just saying... You know, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. And if you don't roll the dice well nine times in a row at an event like LVO, you lost one of your games, guess what? You're out of the tournament. So I, I love the aspect of trying to be in control of your own fate, basically. And that's where the movement phase really comes in. Sorry to, to kind of steal a oh, shot there. I would say, in Manny's defense, a, uh, an invincible Leviathan notwithstanding, I think his approach probably would have worked. Um, yeah. <laughs> however, I'm going to just pause the conversation here. I'm going to do the job. I was brought in to do and say, let's just put this on pause for a second and get a word from our sponsors. If you're in the United States, if you're not, it's just going to be an awkward transition right back to us. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges. So you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. And we're back. All right. Snap the uh, clicker. It was 31 minutes and 20 seconds that we went to break. Nick? What else would you like to know about this list? That's a great question, Val. So, Cameron, I'm thinking of your army. What There's some pieces I'm not quite understanding what they do. What is a solitaire here for? Like, oh, what, my 
seen him in a lot of lists. You know, top players do like him, but he's not typically seen. Why? Why is he here? I also I feel know like ever, so I want you to talk about it in detail. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, yes, of course. So, a uh, little bit of background here. The solitaire kind of got me into Harlequins. Uh, ever since I started playing back in like third edition, um, I was always interested in Harlequins, even though they were kind of mixed to the codex entirely. So when they came back out in seventh, uh, I kind of jumped on them. And basically, every list that I've played, except for I think one Nova, um, I've always had some Harlequins associated with it. But to really get to it, the solitaire is the ultimate janky assassin key piece that is always, almost always, always my MVP in the game. So I guess to Val to kind of help you out here a little bit, because I'm sure not everyone sees a solitaire. Um, solitaire messed me up real good at the last LVO I played in. So uh, please remind me about all the reasons it messed me up. Of course. <laughs> so first off, he's a character. Um, he is probably one of the fastest non-bike characters. He's movement 12. Um, being Harlequin, he can advance and charge. So always just add an extra D6 onto that. Uh, spend three, toughness three, nothing too special, but five wounds, and he has a three open vulnerable save. Um, he also has eight attacks. Uh, he has two weapons they can attack with. He either has a caress, he'll be strength five, minus two, one damage, or he'll be his relic kiss, which is going to be strength four, minus one, d3 damage. Against infantry, he'll be flat three damage, and against everything, he can just reroll fifth wounds. He has a special ability that uh, once per game, you can roll 2d6 and add it to his 12-inch movement. He'll go, he'll add that to his, to like fly across the table, and then he goes up to 10 attacks on top of that. So really, the way that I like to see the solitary is as both an ultimate assassin and as being just a key piece that can get to wherever you want on the board. Now, in your experience, is that a 3-up invulnerable, unfailable save? For me, yes. <laughs> Maybe that's why the solitaire is so good. But Some player, um, it's an unavailable three. Yeah. What, what does he do? He's a, he's a character that can become really fast, and you know he doesn't seem that impressive in close combat. A bunch of attacks, but like they don't not really multi strength D three damage. Why is he good? Well, it is so he runs up at something. He's going to hit him with eight, maybe ten attacks if he's blitzing. It's strength four. He rerolls failed wounds just from his relic, and then it's going to do uh, flat three totally damage missed. against them. Yeah, I totally missed that you covered the relic. Sorry. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. No, the rose, the relic is just amazing. Rerolling wounds and flat three damage just makes him a complete blender for anything. And it's not so necessarily you, just characters. You, what do you what do you go after? Do you go after characters and wait for an assassination type of run? Do you just throw them in there and kill like an entire squad of infantry turn one with the blitz or like what? Do you, what is your plan here? So it goes back again to the list being he's part of the list and he has to fit in that synergy of the list. Um, I think in out of like the past, I don't know, three or four years that I've played with him, I've only blitzed and ran into something turn one in one, maybe two games. Usually he's hanging around midfield, hanging around being just that massive area of denial saying you cannot come close to me with any of your key characters or key units because he's going to run in and just murk something and just be a complete nuisance and of course being a character you can't really be targeted uh, if he's hanging out next to the shadows here he's minus one to wound so snipers can't even mortal him and then he's just a pain in the rear too just hanging out there saying come close to me i'm going to kill you 
So I'm trying to understand like how he assassinates characters. And I totally get it. His stats are awesome. Reroll on a wound, 10 attacks, three damage each. How does he get there? Like, wouldn't a basic screen just like stop him? So that's funny because Harlequins have a rule called flip belts, which basically says you don't have the fly keyword, but you fly. So he can basically move over train and models. Um, and then charge phase, you can just jump over models. What's absolutely wonderful. So you have to make sure you completely screen something. Uh, and he's got that around mill base to really get into those nooks and crannies right next to characters. Exactly. You have to screen perfectly against him. Um, because you even leave a little bit of space, you can jump in there. Um, God help you if you also have 25 mils and base your character because they're less than an inch and he'll fight through you. Um, and then the other thing to mention is that since he is Silent Shroud as well, too, if I'm trying to charge over, uh, let's say, 20 intercessors to try to go kill an apothecary behind them, um, and they left that little gap for me, if I want to ensure that I can get to that character and not take a bunch of Overwatch and make sure I have an easy charge into the rest of the unit, I can just spend two and ignore Overwatch and jump over them and kill the character and then tie a bunch of things up. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was just going to say, uh, you know, you've described this this list as super janky and as a basic bitch player. You know, I, I'd come to the table against this and, I, and I'm basically, I'm seeing like two units. Okay, those are the real ones. Right? Those are the ones I got to be worried about. You know, those Skyweavers and those, those Shining Spears. But I think to be janky, you know, I've got to get punished by things I'm not expecting. And like I said, I've been beat up by a solitaire before, so it's not there. So out of those, like, when you take out those key units, what are some things that just slap people upside the head? What are, what are things that really add to that? Take this list from being, you know, sort of off meta, maybe a little bit, to like actual full-on jank. Sure. So kind of have to uh, give a shout out to the Guardians. Uh, because they are really the kind of the anchor in the list. And we kind of talked about it a little bit already, but um, being able to throw down 40 shots and being incredibly difficult to remove um, when they're protected and fortuned, the platforms have a two-up armor save, the Guardians go to a four-up armor save, they're five-up field of pain, um, and then if you try to shoot them, I can spend one command point to give the entire unit a four-up invulnerable save. When it's protected, that bumps it up to three-up invulnerable. So suddenly you have uh, eight-point bottles that are fearless, that are shooting... 40 shots, uh, excuse me, 42 shots because you got the two cannons on there as well, too, that are fearless, you can't really remove. And they'll just clear out any backfield units and just be a pain they ask to deal with. Yeah, I think it goes to what you're saying. You're just trying to be a denialist, exist on the table, not really take too many casualties with your speed and your shockingly good durability with like three of Binville Fortune Guardians if you need to or whatever. And this kind of goes into the way the solitaire plays. If you use them early, like a little missile, you use them, you lose them. It's that simple. As the game kind of drags on around turn three, turn four, especially later, um, it's harder for people to maintain those kinds of base to base to base screens to keep all their characters safe. Mm -hmm. Units have to units die as 40 K. So other units have to go spread out to get objectives or interact with your opponent, deal with the shining spears coming into you. Those units can't no longer be screens for your characters like that, so your characters become vulnerable. That's where the solitaire really comes in late game. So I see the overall strategy of the army is one where just like biding its time until finding opportune moments to really hit the guy where it hurts because you have such speed, you can leverage damage wherever you need to. Exactly. Uh, one thing to mention while, because I just thought about this, uh, when you said mid-late game, my opponent is kind of like starting to lack on their screens and units are starting to die, right? Well, if my entire game plan is to start revolving and turning on around turn three when all my bikes start going in, 
having that solitaire being able to move, uh, let's say average roll is three to four. So suddenly he's going uh, what's that, 16 inches himself. He can keep up with the bikes. So it's not like I'm just throwing him turn three to go kill some characters or something on objective. I'm doing that and having the bikes right next to him. So he's still being screened. So it kind of has it kind of culminates into this wonderful mix of having both speed, durability, and having that X factor of him being able to run out, kill the characters, kill that key unit on the objective, really focus on playing the mission, and also crippling my opponent. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's all about leveraging the leveraging your speed to apply the pressure where your opponent is not ready for it, essentially. Exactly. So is there ever a time or scenario where you just kind of deploy online and quicken and move twice with uh, that Shadow Seer spell I forgot the name of? Twilight um, Pathways. Twilight Pathways. Do you ever like quicken and chat Twilight Pathways and just turn one blitz somebody with everything? Or is that are you more patient than that? I tend to be more patient than that. Um, I've done it one time and it was against an Iron Hands castle just to get everything tied up pretty much. Um, it would have worked better if I had a little bit more support. I should have waited one extra turn. Um, okay. It was Basically, also it's lovely. Yeah. Go for it. Why is that? I mean, you have all the speed. If you're having, if you have first turn, um, you can redeploy directly across from your opponent with Phantasm and the Harlequin one. I forget the name of, and just really be perfectly positioned to launch a devastating alpha strike on turn. Why do you not typically go for that? I guess I got to kind of turn the question in your head. Why should I do that? Like, I have this speed, this mobility, the durability. If the whole concept about winning the game isn't always about killing your opponent, it's about sitting on objectives, playing towards the mission, getting points. If I can do that and outlast my opponent and have the ability to punch back and really hit those points later in the game, why do I have to deploy on the line? to suddenly like rush in and probably lose some of my key units that I'd like to use later game. Well, I'm going to answer that kind of like from a less experienced for players perspective. Um, wouldn't you, if you go for it, you deploy in the line, you blitz your opponent, ideally you would deal a crippling blow and then it doesn't matter if you're around for the end game because your opponent's dead turn one. Isn't it? It's kind of like the reason you should is you just win faster. Is that not the case? Not necessarily. Cause when you think about it, Unless you're playing like um, little Timmy, who's this is his first ever RTT round one, and he doesn't have a, and here's his Battle Force box list of uh, salamanders. Yeah, Timmy's good though. I just used salamanders today on stream. I won, right? Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, let's talk. Um, I, I don't even know a terrible army. Let's let's talk um, mono faction witch cult army. Whoa, oh, deep. <laughs> that was deep. Okay. Mono Unless I'm playing against a bottom faction witch cult army, no. Um, as much as uh, I think you say this all the time too, and I'm a big proponent of it, this is a dice game. Um, but you should never ever go into a game and come out of it blaming dice. You always want to think strategy, and you always want to think, I want to put myself in the best possible situation to win. Yes, in theory, if I deployed everything on the line, rushed in, and my spears went ahead and killed Gilliman and my Skyweavers shot perfectly and nuked two tanks, charged everything else, and all the Predators are locked up along with his Devastators and Intercessors. Realistically, that's such a long shot that, yes, in theory, you could win turn one, 
But there's so many additional variables and points of failure that I do not want to take that risk because suddenly I put myself out of position that if I go all in and I do not make that blow, I am terribly, terribly behind in the game. Either I'm going to lose key units or I'm going to be completely mispositioned to grab objectives or suddenly I lose screens or suddenly all I have is the avatar and two units of rangers left because he shot everything else. Right. It kind of, you answered my question beautifully, but just to like kind of reiterate it, it's, it's like a risk reward type thing. Like, yes, I could just win the game faster and be done with it and go to the bar and have fun for the next two hours and not have to worry about playing this game, which I could theoretically lose if he, if the longer it goes, you know, it's risky. There's so much risk associated to going all in like that. You could fail quicken. I know you probably have rerolls. You have your children of prophecy. I don't care. Dice are dice. And if your spears fail quicken in the middle of the table on top of turn one, that's really bad. Similarly, the Twilight Pathways power has no real rerolls. Um, you could use a CP. There's no bonuses to cast. Only a six. Quicken's a six. What's your council strat? You ones count as twos. You have runes of whatever. Um, and you have command point rerolls. You shouldn't fail either. That doesn't mean anything. Not only that, but then there's more points of failure. You finally get there. Then you have to orchestrate the charge perfectly to really deal that crippling blow. Have nothing go awry. Like, make sure your lances actually hit. I know you have a guy, but I could also fail, and then you could just whiff your hit rolls. Skyweavers don't have any rerolls to hit or wound or anything. They're just, if they roll bad, they rolled bad. And then if you roll bad on your saves, like maybe you were only supposed to lose a couple Skyweavers in return, and you lost four because dice are dice. You are now in a really, really rough spot because your alpha strike didn't accomplish everything it needed to. So while you could still maybe win that game with the alpha strike, and maybe you'll win it four times out of five, to win five times out of five, six times out of six, ten times out of ten to win LVO, you need to play the more conservative approach, which is, I know it's not going to be flashy, I know it's not going to be a quick turn one massacre, but there's an... 80-90% likelihood that we just play in the long game, I'll beat you. And it's way more consistently found than I really hope I just pass clicking right here, if you know what I mean. So as a as a, like a much less skilled player, even when I'm playing conser- like what I think is conservative is wildly aggressive, right? And I think that's pretty common amongst sort of mid-tier and lower-tier players. Right, so, right. And I think one of the things that always gets me messed up is I'm really scared about the punch that's coming back at me usually, right? So I'm always all bunched up about, um, you know, if I don't take this shot, then I'm going to die. And for, you know, I'll throw this to Cameron because he's our, he's our guest. For you, like, what is it that allows you to play KG? Like, what are you doing that, you know, you're not getting crushed and knocked out uh, because you're not making that aggressive play? Yeah, so I think it's uh, part more of a mental game rather than anything else. Um, and really, the... What the way that it was put to me like forever ago, and what I always kind of think about is that in a game, it doesn't matter how many models you lose or how many things you've lost, except for the last one, of course, because then your table and you lose. But it doesn't matter how many models you're actually losing in a game, as long as you end up getting more points and fulfilling the win conditions of it. And the glorious thing about 40k is that even if your favorite and best painted model or cool unit that you were expecting to do so much ends up dying to dice or to some crazy swing back idiocy coming, it's going to respawn next game. So I never tend to like think about my losses. Instead, I always, if something does happen that doesn't, that I didn't expect to, or doesn't really go my way, or the dice 
do something crazy. I like to take a step back from the table and really refocus on like what are my goals for the individual turn and for the overall game state and how can I accomplish those with the remaining pieces that I have on the table. Yeah. So it's it's more of a matter of I think being defensive just generally uh, understanding your opponent's threat ranges and his capabilities because mm-hmm. what you just described Val is basically fear it's acting out of fear you're you're saying if I don't kill my opponent first he's going to kill me which I guess makes sense but can he kill you now in certain armies yeah if you don't kill him first they will kill you let's go back to the Manny Chima artillery list that's one where you deploy in line and you pray you pass quick in or I, my plan going second was literally deploying line and hope I seize that that's how bad that match is going second <laughs> but most armies in 40k also have some they aren't so binary as that so you need to understand what their threat ranges are can you mitigate them through terrain through distance through making him overextend if he does want to come in and kill my shining spears do I get to kill his Sanguinary Guard in return? Is that a trade I'm okay with? And that's how you get kind of like a chess match. And that's really where high level competitive 40k is played. It's on that chess level, not the let's just roll dice and see what happens level. So if you, I mean, if you understand the threats and you can do something about them, that's where you can make risk assessments and all that instead of just blindly acting out of fear that if I don't kill him first, he's going to kill me. I might as well get this done. All right. So playing situational football, the school of Belichick is what you guys are talking about. I don't know what that means, but yeah, we'll go with that. Yes, your job. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm just looking at the time. I think this is a good segue over perhaps to those individual matchups. Is there uh, anything I else? You so want I do want to just touch with one question on Cameron before we go, um, and we get into how he approaches all these different scenarios, because obviously the tactics episode is really where we're going to come into our own here. Um, Cameron, ITC has changed since uh, you wrote this list for LEO and played it. We yep. have a new mission set with attackers and defenders. Do you think it translates well to the new style, or would you make any changes? I'm trying different things for the league. I still think as a whole, the list functions pretty well. Um, it's a very janky and I'd call it a unique list just because of the way everything kind of fits together. Um, but some of the worst, some of the bad secondaries went away and some of the changes to them, how I can get multiple points in a turn um, definitely lend itself to this list. Uh, we can talk a little bit more about like engineers, for example, or um, the changes to behind enemy lines. It's, I definitely want to make some revisions to it but I wouldn't call it as a uh, complete washout with the new changes. Can you give us like one or two quick examples of something you're considering changing? Um, yeah, actually, I'm a little bit down on spears right now. Um, I would actually change the spears to a second unit of Skyweavers and probably beef out the Harlequins um, to just more Skyweavers, honestly, because they... Really? So it, I always looked at Skyweavers as meta-dependent list, and... Or a meta dependent unit and like an LVL vehicles everywhere, provide then great, take more. But I think the game is kind of stepping back from vehicles a bit and going more into infantry. At least that's what I'm seeing. If, is that why are you down on the spears right now? They, unless they trade up and they do everything, um, you're investing a lot of points into making a unit work. That if it doesn't work, then you're suddenly down a lot of points if you want to think of it that way. You think of all your psychic powers you have to invest. Um, and when you think about them running in to kill something, let's say they charge or them being short range, 
they are very susceptible to being counterattacked. And like you said, if the meta is going very much more infantry heavy, most of those infantry um, have like hidden thunder fit, thunder um, power fists or thunder hammers or good characters that are ready to come out and charge. And I am not very happy when I trade a 300 point spear unit for a 120 point smash captain. Or it's yeah. 120 point smash captain picks up my 300 point unit. And I invested right. in protection and protection so you're everything. Really, you're just wanting that more durability with the invul saves that the, the Skyrish provide you and that 24 inch range instead of 12 inch range. So you can kind of use that as a safety blend net, basically. Exactly. I gotcha. Cool. So, uh, Val, were there any questions you wanted to ask Kara before we move on? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think I've gotten in my, uh, my share of ignorance and so, uh, quite happy to, to move on. I actually want to turn it on, on your, both of y'all for one second here. I have one question to you. Um, when you look at the list here, what do you think I would rate as my MVP unit? You're solitaire because I know you personally. <laughs> Just the way you were talking, I would have to guess the Guardians, and I've seen other people talk very highly of them. Cool. Uh, I have to say both of you are wrong because it's actually oh. my Shadow Seer. Shadow Seer. Really? All right. Well, we're going to have to cover that because apparently we missed this, this one. <laughs> sure. All right. Shadow Seer, the MVP. So when you think about the Shadows here, there are a couple of rules that I really want to get through. So first off, um, him being the Warlord, he has access to the Harlequin Re- Warlord trait, uh, Player of Twilight. So it's a command point regeneration. The difference with that is it whenever you spend a stratagem, I roll a dice. If I the roll of the dice equals the amount of command points spent, I get that many back. I can when still spend the stratagem. Do you mean when you use a command point as the Eldar player, or when I, as your opponent, use a stratagem? Both. Oh, wow. Okay. So let's say um, let's say you spend two command points to interrupt me in the fight, and I have not regained any command points this battle round. If I roll a two, I get two command points back. So I can get it's a one six chance because I have to it's roll equal to your command points. One six chance to get command points back, but I roll for every time we use a stratagem, and I can get more than one um, per battle round uh, for the battle round. Right? I can only ever regen one time but i could okay. get like but you get right. if you roll, like, someone does a three cp fight again and you roll three you gain three command points yeah that's exactly exactly yeah. one um, of the questions i didn't ask was actually around um cp management because you got nine but a lot of the stuff that keeps your stuff durable and correct me if i'm wrong is kind of cp uh intensive um you know from the sky sky weavers ignoring um Overwatch and uh, you're buffing up your guardians and a couple other ones, if I'm not mistaken. How hard is it to manage CP or does that kind of solve your problem? Just the, the uh, Shadow Seer. Yeah, the Shadow Seer definitely mitigates some of the issues. Um, and the Avatar, too, because it just saves you all those CP you'd spend on. Even auto, not just auto passing, but you ever roll like a six on a morale check and you're like, man, I'm going to lose three spears here. I don't like that. So I'll reroll it. Like little stuff like that. Yeah, it's yep. a four. The reroll charges as well too. Like, I don't want to spend a reroll, but I need my spears to get in. Oh look, they're strung out to the avatar. Bam. Um, yeah. I guess to get back to the shadow seer too. Um, when you think about it, the shadow seer always takes twilight pathways, which is the warp time for the harlequins. But he also has smite, and he has shards of light. Uh, being uh, psyker, he can cast two. Um, so smite, everyone knows what smite does. Uh, so cast on five. He does d three mortal wounds. Closest thing. Shards of Light cast on a 7, it'll do D3 mortal wounds and minus 1 to a unit's leadership. It's an 18-inch range, and it picks a unit. So it's a targetable smite, so I can start shooting some, down some characters. Now, when you couple the fact that your minus 1 leadership from the Shards of Light 
And if you're within six inches of any of my Harlequins, you're an additional minus one leadership. Shadow Seer has a grenade launcher. It's 18 inch range, so assault one. He's BS2, so he's going to hit you more than not. And then he rolls 2d6 and compares it against your leadership. If he equals or beats that leadership, he does additional d3 mortal wounds. So there's a 110 point model because an HQ is giving me a bunch of command points back. Uh, he's supporting my units with Twilight Pathways. And then mid to late game, when he doesn't have the Skyweavers nearby anymore, he just becomes a mortal wound turret, putting out 3d3 mortal wounds in a turn. Now that, to me, is an excellent example of jank, because I would never <laughs> think that that guy's going to potentially deal out six mortal wounds and, like, cause a failed morale check. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you're not... You're thinking, like, okay, there's a Shadow here. Who cares? And then all of a sudden, you take six, seven mortal wounds from this guy, and you're like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> you can come out with and some other smites, and all of a sudden, this Harlequin nonsense army is pumping out, like, ten mortal wounds in a short range. Yep. And then on top of that, if you do survive somehow, uh, your minus two leadership and you roll in two d six, pick the highest for morale. That silent shroud stuff. Really good versus those smaller squads that don't really have any morale protection, but they're using the size of their squad to kind of make it insignificant. So, like, let's take a space marine unit for example. Mm. Leadership eight, um, five guys. Let's say you kill three, hit it with the shards of light thing. Now it's it's leadership eight. It's lost three models, but then one more for silent shroud. One more for Shards of Light. Your leadership three is what you're testing on. And you're rolling, rolling two. Pick the highest. Yep. So you're rolling five and a three. You know, you're losing the two more guys, and that squad is now just dead. You've only killed, like, Smite's killed three Space Marines between the Shadow Seer and then a leadership check to finish that squad. That is, no one would ever expect a Shadow Seer to walk over and just smite off an intercessor uh, unit, but it absolutely could. Yep. Uh, the final thing I'll say about the Shadow Seer. Yeah, one final thing. Uh, the Warlord trait, besides giving you regen, he also gets a free reroll for a hit, save, wound, or damage roll. Usually I use it for a save, so if he uses four-up invul, um, he's suddenly a little bit durable because he's got a free extra reroll, especially like end of game when I need one pass one more save and I don't have command points. Here's my free reroll. And then uh, one thing the Shadow Seer does is he has a six-inch R for all infantry, so it can't affect the pikes, but it can affect that trip in the solitaire and himself. He's minus one to wound. So at best, winging him on threes. And all of your sixes are suddenly fives for like snipers and things. Reasonably durable. Awesome. So, I mean, like I said, that that wraps it up here for me. Unless Val, you have any more questions? That's no, worked. sir. Awesome. So, I think there's a lot to cover in episode two, the tactics portion, where we're going to go through exactly how Cameron will approach each individual matchup. If you're not a Patreon, um, I don't know why you're not a Patreon. You're just doing it wrong. You should just sign up. It's five bucks a month. And you get to hear about Cameron's lovely Shadow Seer adventures. Also a bunch of other stuff. And uh, if you are a Patreon, we'll see you over there in now. Bye-bye. Like the strategy discussion you heard? Want to hear more about the tactics of this list? Sign up for our Patreon at AOW40K.com where we go deep into details of optimal play. This has been Art of War, a strategy and tactics podcast for Warhammer 40K. Hosted by Nick Nanavati and John Damaris. Produced by Seamus Ronan. Find us at AOW40K.com. And of course, connect. connect. 
on Facebook. Just look for AOW 40K. AOW 40K. AOW 40K. Till next time.